Well, we made it through six weeks of this stuff. There's no real news today. Uh, so, whatever. Three, two, and one. Good morning. <laughs> I gotta get my little zen, you know? Here we go, all right, here we go, here we go. Three, two, one. <laughs> and this is fake news. Dude, the paper didn't even, I'm sorry, dude, I was going down. I was like, oh, and it wasn't even you. You didn't even do it. Okay, here we go, here we go. Right, right, sorry, please. <laughs> Please. And Americans got to Americans. <laughs> it's America. 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 Sorry. America. America. Stand up for America. Don't put that in there. I'll just play. Two. Two. One. America. Sorry. <laughs> I had to get it out. What? What? Okay. I'll try it. Study finds, uh, <laughs> study finds, avoiding red meat. Oh, I got a little tickled in the middle of there. I don't know if you could hear it. You could hear it, I, I could hear it because I was thinking about America. You be eating. Like I'm on the toilet or something. All right, don't put that in my outtakes. Um, <laughs> oh, no, I didn't say anything. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. <laughs> Let's give it up for Johnny. If uh, you haven't been here in a while and maybe you missed the last several weeks, um, Johnny has been doing fake news segments and he's always been so uh, proper and polite and everything is just well rehearsed. And uh, so I think we needed to show some of the unrehearsed, unscripted things. So he's done a great job in that. If you missed some of those, you can go back and watch some of those online. Um, excited about this morning though. And uh, I wanna start off just kind of this understanding because I know this is true about me and I'm, I'm assuming it's true about you and I know it's dangerous to assume things, but uh, what I see in the mirror oftentimes dictates what I do, what I say, how I live. Uh, let me give you an example. Yesterday, many of you woke up yesterday morning and again this morning and when you looked in the mirror, what you saw was an Astros fan. And so yesterday that dictated a little bit of how you lived and how you talked and what you uh, did last night even. And uh, so I just wanna kind of press into that for a second because I'm curious to know how many of you in the room this morning stayed up late last night and in the bottom of the ninth as that ball came off of Altuve's bat um, and went into outer space, let out a verbal shout in your house regardless of who may be asleep. Anybody, just throw your hands up. Yep, all right, all right. Some of you are still sleepy because you stayed up late. And so uh, this, is, this is the crowd participation moment. How many of you took it a step further and you didn't just yet let out a shout, but you actually jumped up and down in your living room as you watched on TV? Anybody? Okay, good, good. This, I like this crowd over here. I, I like the, the, the verbal, it's good. Um, I appreciate that. Let, let me go a little bit further. How many of you didn't just shout, didn't just stand up and jump up and down, but you literally ran around your house like a middle school boy or a girl when that home run was hit. Anybody willing to say, yeah, that was me, that was me. All right, this crowd is the crowd you need to go watch a baseball game with, clearly. Um, 
The reason is because we love the Astros, and I've got to make a public confession here in front of all of you as my witness. Um, I was a bad dad yesterday. Um, I didn't grow up an Astros fan. I actually grew up rooting for the team in Atlanta that has been sitting at home the last couple weeks watching baseball playoffs. Um, But last night, got to the seventh inning, and I thought the Astros had it. I thought it was done, and so I sent my boys to bed. I said, hey, it's not a big deal. Y'all go to sleep. And in the bottom of the ninth, I thought, man, I am, a, I am a bad dad. I made my boys go to sleep and miss an epic moment for this city, the city that they love. And so um, I just wanna apologize to you guys for being a poor leader in my house with my kids. Um, but it's true. When we look in the mirror, oftentimes what we see dictates what we do. I, I, several weeks ago, I had a birthday, and I remember waking up and looking in the mirror, and I just had this thought, Wes, you are the age that your parents were when you thought they were ancient as a teenager. And I began to kind of look closely at some of the things going on on my face and with my body. And I'm like, man, I got that 15, 20, 25 extra pounds. And so it began to dictate how I thought that day. It dictated what I ate just that day. You know, I went after everything that tastes terrible because I thought maybe that would help me look better. And I abandoned everything that tastes good. The next day I went back to my normal routine. Um, but it dictates what we do. And I think it gets a little more serious than that. Because what we see, we oftentimes begin to believe about ourselves and it does begin to dictate how we live our lives, what we say, the interactions that we have. Let me, let me kind of show you what I'm talking about this morning. Um, I've got a mirror on the stage. But I know that this is probably true for many of you, as it's been true for me at different times in my life. But when I look in the mirror, oftentimes I don't like what I see. I begin to kind of reflect because I've looked at pictures of old, or I'm looking at current pictures, or I'm looking at everybody else's pictures, and I begin to think, man, I, I wish I looked a little bit different. Maybe, maybe ladies, you think, I wish I had curly hair. I hate my straight hair. I just want curly hair. Or maybe you got curly hair and you wish the opposite. I wish I had straight hair. I wish my hair was shorter. I wish my hair was longer. Or maybe you think, man, I wish I was stronger. I wish I was faster. I wish I was taller. I wish I was shorter. I wish I was skinnier. And then we begin to look at social media with that in our minds and we begin to think, I just wish that I could look something like that like them, their family looks so great, they're so beautiful and proper and cleaned up and I never look like that. And I was reading this week and I think this is maybe an important little nugget for us to think about and think about this week but when you're looking at social media, at what people put on social media, you're looking at the billboards of their life, not the diaries of their life. And it might be important for us to remember that because we see them at their best and then we try to live up to that and it's dangerous. Because then we go back and we look in the mirror and we begin to think to ourselves, you know what, when I look in the mirror, I am simply ugly. We don't like what we see, and it begins to dictate what we do. Maybe that's not what it is for you. Maybe maybe you're a man in the room, and you have always desired to be the one that provided security for your family, that could provide for your family. And maybe recently you've gone through a job loss, an unexpected turn of events happened at work, and you lost the income that provided that security, and you begin to look in the mirror, and you begin to think, failure. Maybe you didn't get the job you always wanted and it crushed your hopes and dreams for the future for you and for your family. Maybe you're a parent and you look at the life of your kids and you think, man, I blew it. I didn't raise my kids the way that I always hoped I would raise my kids and you can't get past believing failure about yourself and you say, I'm just a failure. That's just who I am. Maybe you've lived in the shadow of someone else your entire life. And so when you look in the mirror, you simply just think, I'm in second place. I can't live up to the reputation of my father. I can't live up to the reputation of my older brother or older sister or somebody else in my life. I'm always in the shadow. Maybe you were in a relationship and it was great. The marriage was great. He was perfect, she was perfect. 
And then all of a sudden, in a moment, things changed. And you find yourself looking in the mirror, believing, I am divorced. And you wear this around your neck like a scarlet letter, and it dictates how you live your life. It dictates how you interact with other people. It dictates how you see a dating relationship. It's, just, it's discouraging. Maybe in, some, in a season like that, you begin to think about, you know, why did they have to leave? Why did he leave? Why did she leave? Why did mom leave? Why did dad leave? Why was dad never there? And so when you look in the mirror, you simply just begin to think, I am abandoned. They walked out on me. And maybe it wasn't somebody in your family. Maybe it was actually the church. And I just wanna say, listen, the church is not a perfect place. We're a bunch of people together, imperfect people together that make mistakes. But maybe the church turned their back on you in your darkest moment and you just kind of disappeared. Nobody reached out. Nobody called. Nobody texted. And I just want to say, if that was something that we contributed to as community of faith, I'm sorry for that. I promise you it wasn't intentional, but we're not perfect. But we want to point to a perfect God. But that's what you look at. You look and you think, I'm just abandoned. And then the pain and the hurt of all those things begin to combine, and it cripples us from allowing people to come in close. And so when we look in the mirror, we just simply look and we think, lonely, broken. And maybe to numb the pain of that hurt, you begin to drink that, you begin to smoke that, you begin to eat that, you begin to consume that, you begin to watch that, all trying to numb the effects of some of the things that you see when you look in the mirror. And it becomes this repetitive cycle of pursuing that, then feeling guilty about it, and then making the promises to yourself, to the people around you, to God, saying, I'll never do it again, only to do it again, and it's in the cycle of discouragement. And when you look in the mirror, you can't get past looking beyond the fact that maybe I'm just an addict, and this is all I am, this is all I'll ever be. And ultimately, it might even lead some of us to a place where we think, man, no one understands me. Nobody knows what it's, live, what it's like to live life in my shoes. And we get frustrated, we become hopeless. And when we look in the mirror, we simply just think, I am depressed. And we begin to have thoughts that are incredibly unhealthy, incredibly destructive. You know, I could, can go on and on and on because I'm not just seeing this in all of us, I'm seeing it in myself sometimes. I feel the weight of this, we feel the weight of this. But here's the reality, is as we begin to think about these things, we have to recognize that as long as we believe these things about our lives and we begin to define our lives as any of this, we will always do and say things we never wished we had done. You see, I believe there's an identity crisis in our culture. We're chasing after trying to find the true definition for ourselves, believing the lie, believing the fake news for today, and it's simply this. The fake news for today, I am who I say I am. I get to take what people say about me, what I believe about myself, what my mirror says about me, what culture says I should be, and I get to define who I am. It's almost like we take pride in that. We think, you know what, I just am who I am. I get to determine that. It's my choice, it's my decision. I mean, society has picked up on this. Companies have picked up on this. Branding has picked up on this. It's why your social media accounts use the algorithms to try to point you to certain products so that they can help you define who you are. I mean, you walk into Bass Pro Shop, guys, and you get in there, and you see fishing stuff everywhere, you see things all over the wall, you see the clothes, and then you walk out and you think, man, I'm a fisherman. I'm a hunter. I am a master of the wilderness. Nothing will hide from me. I will get them. It's on purpose, it's intentional. You walk into the Apple store, and you see all the things going on, and you walk out of there and you think, man, 
I am hip, I am trendy, I am smart, I am simple, and I will take over the world with an iPhone in my hand, all on purpose. You walk into Victoria's Secret, you walk out, and I'm just gonna leave that one there. I'm not gonna go there this morning. I'm just gonna leave that one there. But do you see it? You know, it's interesting. God, throughout his word, speaks over and over and over, reminding us of who we are, almost like he knew that we would struggle to remember who we get to be. Look what 1 John 3, verse one says. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. Who is us? John is writing to an audience of people who have decided to follow Jesus. These are Jesus' followers. They have placed their trust in Jesus, and he is writing to them to help them know who they are. He says, what lo- the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. I mean, that is, that is critical this morning. And he says, and that is what we are, exclamation point. It's like, don't miss this. That is, that is who we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. He's wanting to remind us And so the truth for us this morning, to launch us forward in the the rest of our time together is simply this. In Christ, I am who he says I am. You know, who gets to label, who gets to define, who gets to name something? The maker and the buyer. And scripture tells us that God created us in his image. Long before we ever knew him, he formed us in our mother's womb. He made us. He created us, but he also purchased us with the life of his son, Jesus, so that we could be with him forever. He is the maker and he is the buyer. Therefore, he gets to say who we are. And in Christ, I am who he says I am. It's an incredible launch pad for us this morning. And to better understand this in our lives for us today, I wanna look at a quick story in Luke chapter eight. And it's a story about this woman who has this encounter with Jesus that completely shapes her life, completely flips the script of her life, And to set this up, I want you to kind of have a little context of what is going on in this passage. There's a man named Jairus. He was prominent, he was respected, he was powerful. He was someone that everybody knew in the community. And he comes to Jesus in a moment of panic and desperation because this 12-year-old little girl is dying. And so he finds himself in a desperate situation where his abilities cannot dictate the situation that he finds himself in. So he runs to Jesus and says, Jesus, I'm desperate. Will you save my little girl? And so in this moment of desperation and panic, Jesus and Jairus and all of Jesus' followers begin to make their way to Jairus' house to rescue this little girl. So this is a moment of urgency. This is a bizarre scene. Look where we pick up in verse 42. Look what it says. It says, as Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman who was there had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. I mean, this is a bizarre scene. It would be like a crowd like this, all crowding around Jesus, trying to see who this man was, trying to maybe be able to observe one of the miracles that they'd heard people talking about in the life of Jesus. And they're on their way to rescue this little girl from death. And we find out that there's a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. The original text actually describes this as this this woman was actually suffering from a continual menstrual cycle for 12 years. And it's important for us to know that because it means something. When we think about this woman, and you think about what she would see as she looked in the mirror, she would see, I am sick. I am in pain. I am discouraged. I can't have kids. I am broke. Luke was a doctor. 
And so when Luke says no one could heal her, he's probably meaning even the doctors. She had probably spent everything she had to try to just get well, to try to be healed. So she finds herself in this place believing that she's sick. But what's also interesting is in this Jewish culture, we would know that she was also seen as ceremonially unclean because of her condition, which means that she would not be welcomed in a place like this. She wouldn't be allowed to worship with you. She would not be allowed to come into this place to celebrate God's goodness with everybody else. No worship, no hugs, no husband, no relationships. She was an outcast. She was pushed out. When she looked in the mirror, she probably said, I am an outcast. Nobody cares about me. Nobody knows me. I mean, look at the contrast in the story. Jairus is mentioned by name, a man who is prominent and respected and powerful and well-known in his community. This woman is simply just described as a woman with a condition. I think it's important for us to recognize, even in that the extremes. You have a man who's powerful, who's well-known, who's respected, who's smart. You have a woman who nobody knows, who's constantly been pushed out, sick, in a desperate situation, just like the desperate situation of Jairus. But what I think it's trying to help us see this morning is that every single one of us will find ourselves in a place in life where we are desperate because what we can control can no longer help us in the situation that we find ourselves in. And we need somebody bigger than us. We need somebody more powerful of us in our moment of desperation. And so it gives me confidence that there's not a single person in this room this morning that is too far gone from Jesus. It's interesting what happens in the story after this in the next verse. It says that she came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak and immediately her bleeding stopped. This is a crazy scene, but think about this. This woman decided it was time for her to make her move. Jesus had made himself available to her. Jesus had gotten her attention. That always happens first. He gets our attention, but then we have a choice to make. We have to decide, am I gonna make a move towards Jesus? It's interesting that she decides to make a move towards Jesus while he's in the middle of this crowded place. It says that she ran and she touches his cloak and immediately her bleeding had stopped. You know, what's interesting is I think there's a lot of people in American churches who know about Jesus, who have considered making a move to Jesus, who maybe even have a little bit of sprinkle in their life from Jesus, who post scripture on their social media accounts, who take pictures of the sunrise with their coffee cup and their Bible open so that everybody knows that they're thinking about Jesus, who say the Lord's Prayer before a sporting event, who maybe says says the prayers with their kids before they go to sleep, but maybe have never actually made a move towards Jesus for fear of the crowd. What will they think about me? What will they say about me? What will my parents think? What will my friends think? What will my coworkers think? What will my neighbors think? What will my teammates think? If I was to actually make a move towards Jesus, I think we can find encouragement this morning by what the woman does. She says, forget the crowd. I need Jesus. And when she made her move to Jesus after he made himself known to her, he responds to her trust and she finds healing. You see, every time we take a step to Jesus, he works the transformation in our lives. Look what happens after this. Jesus says, who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. I mean, the disciples are probably thinking, "Uh, Jesus, there's hundreds of people. Everybody has touched you. They're brushing up against you. They elbowed you. That dude over there tried to steal your wallet and your iPhone when you went by. I mean, Jesus, really, who touched you? 
And then Jesus, in this like Jedi moment, he says, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. What an incredible scene. But I think it's important for us to see this because what Jesus is doing is he's wanting her to take responsibility. He's wanting her to own what she's done, to own her move toward Jesus. You know, I do this with my kids sometimes, and you have too. My boys are nasty, and I'm sorry, I talk about my kids a lot, and I apologize for that, but that's just a big part of my life right now. But they're gross, and they are master snackers. They never stop eating until it's time to eat, and you bring them to the dinner table, and you set the good food in front of them, and they're like, I'm not hungry. I'm like, boy, you better eat that food, or I'm gonna. It's the constant struggle in our house. Sometimes I'll walk upstairs, and I'll go into the game room, and I'll look at the floor, and it is littered with chip bags, candy wrappers, Gatorade bottles with about a third of the Gatorade left in the bottle. And I'll look at it and I'll be like, are you kidding me right now? And I'll say, hey, who left trash all over the floor upstairs? And listen, I'm not asking that question because I don't know. I know the answer to my question. And oftentimes they respond with something like, uh, it wasn't me. I'm like, Johnny, it wasn't me. <laughs> like, it had to be somebody else. And they both deny it. And I'm like, really? I was like, guys, if neither one of y'all left the trash on the floor, then we've got a bigger issue in this house. We need to go on a manhunt because somebody is trashing our house for us. But the reason that I asked that question is simply this. I want them to take responsibility and I want them to respond. I want them to act based on their ownership of the situation. Throw the trash away. I think that's what Jesus is doing in this situation. He's wanting this woman to take responsibility for what she did and to respond. You see, it's important for us to recognize this because a relationship with Jesus was never intended to be a one-time move towards Jesus and be like, I'm in, good, awesome. I, man, I am going to heaven one day and everything's gonna be good. You see, a relationship with Jesus is a continual journey that we take. And when we take that first step, he calls us to take a second step. And oftentimes that second step is baptism, to publicly acknowledge that we are trusting him. But even beyond that, he's calling us to take another step, to keep going, to continue to trust. And every time you trust and you take that step, he goes to work and he begins to stir something in us that is of him and is not something we can do on our own. And in this moment, this woman has a decision to make. Look what it says. It says, then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Man, what a bizarre scene. I mean, this woman who has been pushed out for years, who had been shamed for her condition, who had been told she didn't belong, who wasn't even mentioned by name, Jesus calls her out and he saw what she did. And she probably began to reflect on who she thinks she is based on what she sees in the mirror. And she probably began to think, oh my goodness, what's about to happen? Is he gonna treat me the way everybody else has always treated me in my life? She had a decision to make. And we see in this passage that she's trembling. She's terrified. She's scared. But notice, she doesn't stay scared, terrified, and trembling and stay in the back of the crowd. It says that she comes out and she falls at his feet. It's a moment of surrender, despite what she feels. And my goodness, is this not something that we struggle with? I mean, so oftentimes we think, you know what? I, I don't really know what to do with all of this. I know that maybe Jesus is calling me to take this step, but it just doesn't feel right yet. I just don't know this is what I'm supposed to do. I don't know that I know enough about Jesus. And listen, if that's you and you're like, man, I kind of want to step into this, but I feel like I know, need to know a little bit more. This woman had no idea all that there was to know about Jesus. 
but she went with what she knew. And she knew that maybe he could help her with where she was in life. Sometimes you just have to go with what you know, but explore to know more when it comes to your relationship with Jesus. Go with what you know, but don't stop there. Keep exploring, continue to understand, continue to know more about who he is, and as you do, he'll continually ask you to take steps. For some of you this morning, you simply need to take that first step towards Jesus. Simply make your move, because you've trusted yourself for far too long, and it's gotten you to a place that you don't like. You don't like what you see when you look in the mirror, because you've always called the shots. What would it look like to make that move towards Jesus? Say, Jesus, I've trusted myself for far too long, and today I'm, I'm, I'm giving you my life. I'm making my move towards you. I don't know everything there is to know about you, but I'm gonna trust you. And I'm gonna take that first step. And then maybe he's gonna call you to take that next step. And then that next step, every step along the way, continuing to transform in you who he ultimately desires that you be. And it's always better. You know, I'd love to talk through a couple of examples where we struggle with this. I have conversations with people all the time, especially students back in the days of student ministry, but even adults, you know, they get into this cycle. The dating scene is just, uh, let's just say, disappointing. And it starts in middle school, it starts in high school, and you start to have that desire, and it seems like it always happens when like, you go to a church camp, and you've got that church camp romance that lasts like three days, you get back home from camp and you hate each other, but it was great that first day. Like she was the right one, he was Mr. Perfect, and then it was great until it wasn't great. But then we have this tendency to jump right back into another relationship with someone else because they're great until they're not great. And then we find somebody else and they're great until they're not great. And it just becomes this incredible cycle of dysfunction and regret and disappointments. And then we become adults and we just continue that same cycle. And maybe what Jesus is calling you to do today is to simply circle today's date on the calendar, October 20th, and go a full calendar year, 10, 20, 20, 20, and say, you know what? For the next 365 days, 366, next year's leap year. <laughs> but for the next calendar year, I'm gonna stop focusing all my effort in trying to allow other people to know me and me trying to get to know them, constantly ending up in a place of disappointment. And I'm gonna focus that time on just knowing Jesus and allowing Jesus to begin to stir something in me to help me understand more of who I am so that I'll stop letting everybody else tell me who I am so that I can hopefully please them to be in a relationship that's good for me. What would it look like to trust Jesus with your dating life? Maybe it's just simply an anxiety issue. It dominates your mind. You can't stop thinking about all the things going on in your life. It keeps you awake at night. What would it look like to do what Philippians 4, 6 says, just to simply stop, to not be anxious about anything, but to pray, to just stop and pause and disconnect and just sit there and begin to tell God everything that's going on in your life, but then to begin to just listen and say, God, fill me up, teach me something new, take this anxiety away from me. And you think, man, Wes, I really, just, you just want me to pray? I mean, I can't go to sleep at night. You want me to just get up and pray? What if you tried it, regardless of how you feel or what you believe might happen? What if you just tried it and you trusted him and then he began to go to work. You know, maybe you're struggling with something. It's just as a constant beat down in your life. You can't seem to make any progress in this area. It's a temptation, it's a struggle, it's a habit, it's a tendency. And you've been trying to um, conquer this in your life, maybe for years, all by yourself. Maybe the step he's calling you to take is to simply trust him and ask for help. 
have a conversation with somebody and say, hey, listen, I've been trying to um, navigate this on my own for far too long and I'm not getting anywhere. You see, there's healing in confessing some of our struggles with each other. Scripture tells us that, it promises that. And I'll just speak to the men for a second. Guys, we're really good at insulating and isolating ourselves from any, when, when anything comes up that's below the surface. You know, we're really good at hanging out with people on the golf course. We're really good at hanging out on the boat, fishing out in the middle of the water. We're really good at going to sporting events, going hunting together. We're really good at all that, but it gets really awkward when we begin to ask the intrusive questions about our lives. I mean, you're driving, you're playing golf, and somebody starts to ask you, hey man, how's it going? And all of a sudden, you, you have to swerve, like miss a cat, and you throw them out the car. And you're like, whoa, whoa, what happened, what happened? And you're like, man, it just got a little awkward. I had to, had to change the subject. You're making me uncomfortable. I don't wanna be vulnerable. But what, what would it look like for us to be intentional in taking a step to have conversations about what's going on in our lives for accountability, for encouragement, so that we can maybe find freedom from the thing that's been holding us captive for years? What if that's the step that Jesus is calling you to take? We could go on and on and on with specific steps. But in this moment, this woman, in all of her shame, in all of her guilt, in all of her fear, she has a decision to make. And her decision is simply surrender. She had to be thinking, what in the world is Jesus gonna do in response in this moment? Look what Jesus says. Then he said to her, daughter, daughter. I mean, this is a woman that we didn't even get her name. She's a no-name, she's a nobody, she's an outcast, she's a reject, she's a misfit. And then the Son of God looks at her in her moment of surrender, in her moment of ownership, in her moment of trust, and he says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in something she's probably never experienced before, peace. I mean, this is incredible. Daughter, it's an intimate term of endearment. It signifies a relationship. I mean, let's just pause for a second and think back. Jairus comes to Jesus as a father who's crazy in love with his daughter and he's pleading to Jesus, Jesus, please don't let her die. And you contrast that with a woman who's probably been pushed out by her father because of her condition. She's fatherless. And Jesus says, I'll be your daddy. I'll show you the love of a father, daughter. That might be the one thing that some of us need to hear this morning because we have a really bad way of representing what a father looks like in our culture sometimes. And there's a void for many of us that we've experienced in our lives when it comes to a father relationship. And the result of that is that we've made choices, we've crossed lines that we never intended to cross, hoping to fill the void that's in our life because we haven't experienced the love of a father. And Jesus is crying out to us today to say, I'll be your daddy. I'll show you a father's love. I'll be a father to the fatherless. You see, what Jesus did on this day wasn't just about physical healing. What Jesus did on this day is he began to flip the script of who this woman believed that she was. She was able to stop believing the lie of what she always said was true about her. She got, she got to begin to forget the lie that everybody had always said about her. She no longer had to believe the lie that she would believe every time she looks in the mirror. You see, this was the central purpose for Jesus. This is why Jesus arrived on this earth. Every single one of us were hopeless, we were desperate, we were pushed out, we were outcast, we are living in the consequences of our condition. And it wasn't a disease, it wasn't a birth defect, it was sin. It was the idea that you and I thought we could handle our lives better trusting ourselves rather than trusting God and that never leads to somewhere good. But Jesus, 
and his love and compassion for us, didn't turn his back on us when he had every right to, but he did everything necessary for us to change who we are so that we don't have to believe the lie of what we see in the mirror. You see, there's an important detail in the story. This woman reaches out and she touches Jesus as an unclean woman. She reaches out and touches Jesus, the one who is clean. You know, anytime something unclean interacts with something clean, they both become unclean. My son, I told you he's nasty and he's, he's proud of it. I mean, he's disgusting and he, he loves it. And I always ask his permission before I share anything about him and he's okay with it. But several months ago, we were sitting in the living room watching TV and he gets up and he walks over to me. He's been having some sinus issues. He walks over to me, he looks at me and he goes, and sneezes all over me. I was like, dude, I'm about to beat you. I was so mad. I was like, what, what is wrong with you? But all of a sudden, I had this filth on me. I was dirty. Listen, if I was sick and I walk up to you and I start coughing on you, there's a pretty good chance you're going to get sick. But that's not what happens in the story. The woman who's unclean touches Jesus who is clean and they both become clean. It didn't impact Jesus in a negative way. It's pointing us to something. This is the scandal of what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus took everything unclean about my life and your life. He took all of my sin, all of my shame, all of my guilt, all of my condemnation, everything I'm not proud of, and he put it on his shoulders and he went to the cross to give his life. And the result of that, I got his acceptance. I get his forgiveness. I get to experience the Father's love. I get to experience life, not just in eternity with him one day, but today I get to experience life that's being transformed every single day as I continue to take a step. He did it in my place for my reward. It's what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Look what it says. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Who they said you were, what you said you were, what the mirror says you were is not who you are. You are a new creation. It has come when we place our faith in Jesus. He says, the old is gone, the new is here. It's here. Man, there's power in that. There's power in what Jesus did for us. You know, growing up in a small town in far west Texas, I struggled with some things. I struggled when I looked in the mirror and I believed a lot of things about myself to be true. You know, I was a, really, really pale, pasty white kid growing up in a predominantly Hispanic city, community, town, village, whatever, it was tiny. I was a late bloomer. And listen, I grew up around great people, but I would look in the mirror sometimes and I didn't like what I saw. I thought I was ugly. I thought I didn't belong. I mean, look at this picture. <laughs> you're looking at that and you're thinking, man, that's not so bad except that I look like I'm eight, but I'm actually 15 in that picture. <laughs> and you're probably also thinking, man, that guy doesn't look all that bad. I mean, he's not so nice and innocent and sweet and that part though. Listen, I was completely the opposite. I was ruthless. I was ruthless in elevating myself at the expense of everybody else. If I could shine light on everybody else's weaknesses so I could feel stronger, I was running after that because when I looked in the mirror, I didn't like what I saw. I didn't want to, I didn't want to be who I was and I believed that that was true about my life and the result of that was disastrous. It hurt me. It destroyed some of the relationships in my life. It hurt the people around me. 
I look back on that sometimes and I still think about some of the things that I said and I did to people that were not healthy, that even pushed them far from God. Disappointed in that. The summer before my senior year of high school, I finally decided to make my move towards Jesus. And I said, Jesus, I want you to be my everything. I want you to be my boss. And I began to trust him. And he began to transform my life as I began to take steps with him. But you know that even after I decided to trust Jesus, I still have times where I look in the mirror and the enemy begins to speak doubt. He begins to speak lies. And sometimes I'll go days and even weeks believing the lies of what he's saying about me to be true. When I was in college, I took some time off from college. I just dropped out. I quit going. And as I began to look in the mirror, I would look at the mirror and I would begin to think, Wes, you're just a failure. You're not who you said you would be. You didn't finish what you started. And listen, my parents never called me that. My parents never alluded that this is what I was, but when I looked in the mirror, this is what I believed to be true about me. But I had some friends around me who always kind of helped steer me back to recognize who I am in Jesus, that I am who he says I am. But even last year, early in 2018, my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer. And man, for a couple of weeks, I would look into the mirror and I would think, man, Wes, you're doubting God's goodness right now. I was having a hard time believing that God was for me, that God was for my wife, that God was for my kids. I was struggling with it, I was wrestling with it. It was difficult, I was scared. Yet I stand on a platform sometimes and I teach people how to walk through storms because God is good. If it's not good, God's not done. I would teach these things, but I was having a really difficult time believing them in that moment. And so I'd look in the mirror and I would begin to think about myself as a fraud. Am I really who I say I am? And I have to continually remember that in Christ, I am who he says I am. You know, I want, before we close this morning, and please don't leave, because I think that there's something that's gonna happen as we wrap this service up today that you will never forget. But before we do that, I want you to watch the stories of real people with real stories, my friends who go to Community of Faith and some of the things that they've believed about themselves if they looked in the mirror but have begun to start to find some freedom from what they've always believed. Watch these stories. Listen, I don't think there's any coincidence that you're here today amongst a crowd of people with an opportunity to make a move towards Jesus. Because I believe many of us for far too long have believed what other people have said about us and believe that who they say we are is who we are, that we've believed who we say we are is who we are. We've believed what the mirror has said for too long, that this is who we are. And the reality is, is the result of that is many of these things we've believed to be true about us. And they've dictated our decisions. They've dictated the relationships that we've navigated. They've dictated everything we've done in our lives. But we've learned something new this morning. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that in Christ, you and I are a new creation. The old is gone and the new is here. Now listen, what that means is it means that what they say about me is not who I am. What culture tries to lead me to believe is not who I am. What I see in the mirror is not who I am. Jesus, you say I am yours and I will live in that. Jesus, I am your son. Jesus, I am your daughter. I am loved, I am forgiven. That is me.
So when the enemy starts to speak lies and he starts to try to remind me of who he thinks I should be and who he wants me to believe that I am, I get to look back at him and I get to say, I am loved. I am chosen, I am forgiven, I am accepted, I have been made new, I was created on purpose, with a purpose, for a purpose, I am enough, I am worthy, I am complete, I am perfect, I am his. And 2 Corinthians 6.18 says that he is a father to me, and I am his son, and we are his sons, and we are his daughters. Satan, it's nice to meet you, but that's not who I am anymore. And I am done believing the lies that you continue to speak to me because Jesus says, I am his. What does that mean for you this morning? Will you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you get to define who we are and that we don't have to figure that out on ourselves for ourselves anymore. We've messed things up, we've made it destructive, we've created lots of chaos trying to define our lives, to find our identity, and I pray that right now you would just help us find our identity in you. God, I believe you are calling every single one of us in this room to take a step, a move towards you, a move towards the life that you want us to have, so God, give us the courage to take that step, and then as we take that step, would you transform, would you renew, would you make complete everything that's not right, everything that's undone, in our lives, we trust you with that. We don't wanna trust you with just a little bit, we wanna trust you with everything. Help us to do that today. Help us to do that this week. Help us to do that forever. And as we do that, we experience you for the rest of our lives, for all of eternity, in Jesus' name, amen. Listen, tomorrow, you're gonna wake up and you're gonna look in the mirror and you're, you're probably not gonna feel everything you may be feeling right now. But you see, faith is not about feeling, it's about action. And so as you look in the mirror and you continue to fight that tension of believing what you say you are and what they say you are, I want this to be on your mirror somewhere so that when you start to wrestle with that doubt, you can be reminded that he says he wants to be a father to you and you are his son, you are his daughter. And that he says who I am. And you be reminded of that. Community of faith, I love you. I hope you have a great week. I hope the Texans win. I hope the Astros win. We have prayer people down here that would love to pray with you. Have a great week. We'll see you next weekend.